at Waterstone, we are committed to proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating Christ's love, justice, and mercy in our community. During this unique time, this season where all of our daily lives are affected by COVID-19, we believe that the kingdom of God is active and we, the church, are called to embody the presence of Christ in our community. How do we do that? During this series called Beyond the Weekend, we are exploring how to be the church beyond Saturday and Sunday and pursue God in our daily lives. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from the book of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be to someone for gain, to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come on Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Everett. Uh, Everett is one of our senior high students here. Um, we appreciate you reading the word for us today. Uh, how good was it to see Larry today? Wasn't that awesome? I know, yeah, we can give it up for Larry. Absolutely. Oh, it's so good to see him. I know he's worshiping with us online this morning, and he is uh, just chomping at the bit uh, to get back here and worship with you all. Um, I don't know where you're coming from today. I don't know uh, what burdens uh, you brought into this room. Um, but today we are looking at the truth that Jesus is Lord. And that means whatever burdens you might be carrying, whatever battles you might be facing, you can come into this space or you can worship with us online and we can find rest because Jesus is king. The things that we are facing, we do not face alone. And the things we face in this world, the burdens that we carry are not bigger than our king. I was talking with Larry yesterday, and it's important for you to know that even though Larry is at home and he's unable to be with us, he is still driving the vision and the leadership of this church. And I was talking with him yesterday, and uh, he was feeling a little um, 
uh, burdened for the things going on in our country right now. After the shooting uh, in Kenosha of Jacob Blake um, and the unrest and the, the, um, the protests that have arisen there, the riots, and he wanted us to take a moment uh, to pray for God's kingdom to come uh, over that city and over all of the cities and the unrest uh, that we have um, in our country right now. And so I'd like to take a minute uh, with you. I would invite you to pray with me um, for God's kingdom to reign on earth as it is in heaven. Um, we need that truth uh, in our world right now. And so if you would, bow your heads and pray with me today. Lord God, we pray together as your people uh, for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray for protection for those who are in the streets peacefully protesting against injustice. We pray for the lives of black people in our country because we know that black lives matter to you, not as an organizational statement or a political lens, but from a theological perspective. Every life matters to you, but you show particular compassion and concern for those who are experiencing injustice. We know these are painful days for the black community, and so God, give us your compassion that we would listen with humility and that we would be conduits of your kingdom, justice, and equity to those in need. Father, we also lift up and pray for protection over law enforcement in our country. We pray that they would be just and good in these times of unrest. We pray that you would give them the wisdom, skill, and endurance in these times that are incredibly hard days of service. It's a heavy burden they bear as well. And Lord, we ultimately pray for an end to the violence. For those seeking destruction rather than peace, we would ask that they would stop. And we ask for protection over all human life in these times of unrest and frustration. God, we pray that your kingdom, your rule and reign would come down here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. A few weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to catch up with some of my buddies from college. Every two to three years, a group of eight guys that I lived with uh, in undergrad, we gather together and we do a, a trip, some sort of adventure trip where we can come together, have a little bit of fun, but more than that, so that we can pray together, challenge one another, encourage one another. It's uh, that group of friends that no matter how much time has passed, we can always come back together, pick up where we left off, and challenge one another to, to follow after Jesus more fully. Um, it was a great weekend. This one happened to be a little different because we went on a rafting trip up in Buena Vista on the Arkansas River. Um, full disclosure, that was one of the only times all weekend that both of our boats were in the boat. We kept falling out all weekend. In fact, our rafting guides kept saying over and over and over again, we've never fallen out here, or we've never had this problem before, or we've never seen someone do that before. I mean, we were, we were novices to say the least, but we had a blast doing it. But what made this trip different is that night on this overnight trip, while we would uh, be sitting around the campfire, catching up with one another, talking about our families and our faith and where Jesus had taken us over the last few years, we were sharing those things in front of our raft guides who were with us. And they were three college-age students who um, 
we didn't know. They didn't know us other than the fact that they had just let us down a river and kept us alive for the day. And uh, we were talking about all of these things. And as the conversation was going on, we, we tried to bring them into it a little bit. And so one of my friends, he even uh, got to the point where he asked them, hey, what, what do you all believe? What is your faith story? What kind of religion are you a part of? What's the belief system that you hold to? And what we came to find out was that these three raft guides all had grown up in the church in various parts of the country, some in the Bible Belt, some here in Colorado, others out east. They'd all grown up in the church, but they had walked away from Jesus. And as we talked with them and found out more about their story, we, had, we came to find out that they had kind of adopted some sort of spirituality, that they believed in, in some sort of Buddhism, um, but really they just resonated with the teachings of that religion rather than in the religion itself. And so they kind of adhered to this general spirituality. They appreciated the teachings of Jesus, but didn't really think that they were for them. One of my friends in the course of this conversation, he, he had this moment of bold faith where he began to share the gospel with them. And he shared with them the truth that God sent his son Jesus to earth to die on our behalf so that we can receive forgiveness of our sins so that we can be with him in eternity. And it was this moment, I don't know if you've ever had it, but this moment where you take that step of faith, you say things that you know people don't always wanna hear and you share the truth of the gospel with them and nothing happened. He shared this truth and, and they said, that's great, but to be honest, I don't really think that I need forgiveness. And I don't really know that Jesus is the way for me to get to heaven. And what happened in that moment was a, a confirmation for me of a lot of conversations that I've had with people over the last few years as our culture has made these drastic shifts and what was confirmed for me is that the gospel we have proclaimed, the way that we have framed the gospel, the gospel that I received as a kid that brought me to faith in Jesus and caused me to follow him is not effective in our current cultural climate. And I realize that may sound like a blasphemous statement, and I promise you I still believe in the truth of that gospel. But what I mean to say is, is not that the gospel is ineffective, but the way we have framed it is answering questions that people are no longer asking. See, the more people I talk to and the more people I interact with the gospel with, I, I come to find out the same answer from most of them, that they define morality and they define whether or not they're a good or bad person and they define whether or not they are sinful, not what is based on scripture, but what they find internally. And they don't really trust that scripture or the Bible is the authority to define what is good and evil. And so these assumptions we've held in our culture that everybody understands the God we're talking about and everyone understands the basic message that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins so that we can spend eternity with him is not actually effective to answering the questions that people are asking today. See, what I believe has happened is, is in this spirit of, of, of globalism and relativism and individualism, we have gotten to this place where people can define truth for themselves. They can define what makes them good or evil, and they can define what makes them in need of forgiveness or not. And so the proclamation that Jesus is God is a barrier because are we sure that Jesus is God? And the proclamation that people need forgiveness is a barrier because they don't actually think they need forgiveness. 
and the declaration that we can experience eternity with God in heaven because of what Jesus has done, well, are we sure that's the only way to get there? See, but the problem is not with the gospel itself. The problem is with the way that we have framed the gospel. And what I would argue today and what I want to contend with you today is that we have not proclaimed the fullness of the gospel. While that statement that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins so that we can receive forgiveness, so that we can experience eternity with God is true, it's also derivative of the larger story of Scripture. It's a truncated story of the gospel. You see, at its core, the deep truth of Scripture is not just that Jesus died for us. Well, let's see what Scripture says. You see, we have to start with the question of who is Jesus? Because if this is the way we framed the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, but people say, hey, I actually don't really need forgiveness, then they don't have a need for Jesus. And so the question we have to wrestle with is, is who is Jesus? Is the only thing he offers the fact that he can forgive our sins? I think the passage that we're looking at today, this passage from Matthew, answers the question of identity, of who Jesus is in a much broader term, in a way that we need to recapture in order to share effectively the truth of who Jesus is. And then everybody has questions about who Jesus is. Everybody wonders if he is who he says he is. In fact, he asked his disciples that very question. He said this in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Notice in this identification of who Jesus is. Now, you have to keep in mind, this is the center of Matthew's gospel. The whole way leading up to Matthew 16, people are asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this person that has come in power and able to teach and preach and feed and perform miracles? Who is this Jesus? Question hangs over the entire book, and this is the answer. You are the Messiah. That's who Jesus' identity is. You are the anointed one. You are the king. You are Lord. That's what Peter says is the identity of Jesus. And what we have to understand is sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize this declaration. We say, of course, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He is Lord. He's king. He's king of my heart. He wants to rule and reign in my heart. Or he wants to be king over my spiritual life. But that statement that Jesus is king cannot mean now what it didn't mean then. Peter is not making a spiritual declaration or over-spiritualizing the statement that Jesus is king over his heart. He is saying a political statement. Jesus is the Lord who has come to rule and reign and establish God's kingdom on earth. He is making a political statement. He is, he is actually committing treason because those statements that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the son of the living God, those were all titles that were reserved for Caesar. And so Peter declaring that Jesus, 
deserves those titles. And not Caesar is an act of defiance against the empire of that day. And Jesus knows this because he tells Peter and the other disciples not to say anything about this truth. He says that it is true, but that they shouldn't go around saying it because Jesus knows that is what will get him killed. And so he, he swears them to secrecy and silence. And what we have to understand is that the early church was not persecuted or killed because they told people that they, if they believed in Jesus, they could go to heaven when they died. Caesar could care less about where you go after you die. The early church was persecuted and killed and oppressed because they declared that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. And see, Caesar doesn't care about where you go after you die, but he cares about who you're loyal to. He cares about who you give your allegiance to, and he cares about who you worship as king. And so Jesus making the claim that he is king is a threat to the powers of this world. But beyond that, Peter is not just making a political statement. He is also making a cosmic statement. Because the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen by God who is to come establish God's kingdom on earth was not just a political realm, but it was the kingdom that would expand to the entire universe. That Jesus' kingdom was not just for that day, but that it would go on in eternity forever. You see, lots of people like to make claims about Jesus, don't they? I mean, you even see it there. People say that Jesus is one of the prophets. And people love saying that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus came to speak truth to power. He came to push back against the powers of this world and tell them where they went wrong. And we see people making that claim today. Some people would contend that Jesus is on their side and that he is making the claim that Jesus is the one who speaks truth to power. And so that's what we have to do. And others who invoke Jesus' name, they go the opposite direction. They invoke Jesus' name to solidify their earthly power. But Peter's declaration is not that Jesus has come to speak truth to power or solidify earthly power, but that he is above all power on earth. That he is the cosmic king come to reign. And Jesus is not concerned with some podunk empire like Rome. His kingdom is so much bigger and beyond that reality. And so Jesus is king. And that's what's fascinating is, is the other thing we have to notice about this text is as Peter makes that declaration, he doesn't say that Jesus is Savior or that Jesus has come to, to forgive our sins. He says Jesus is king. And Jesus' response to that statement is on this foundation, on this proclamation that I am king, I will build my church. That is the foundation of who we are as the people of God. Not just that Jesus has come to forgive our sins, but that Jesus is king. That is the central message that he came to bring. And so when we preach a gospel that says, yeah, Jesus came to die for your sins so that you can go to heaven, we're preaching an implication of the deeper truth that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then the question becomes, what kind of king is he? What's the nature of his kingdom? What is his kingdom like? I would tell you that the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, 
He has become king and is committed to the renewal and reconciliation and resurrection of all things. You see, Jesus is a king who is not just concerned with some spiritual reality or or some future reality. He is present now. His kingdom has implications for the present moment. John Ortberg, he says it this way. He says, Jesus' gospel contrasts two ways of thinking. The more common version is the thought to involve how people ensure they will go to heaven when they die. That gospel is about how to go from down here to up there. The other understanding is that the gospel announces the availability of life under God's reign and power now. And it's about the up there coming down here now. You see, Jesus' kingdom has implications for our present. So what kind of kingdom did Jesus bring about through his life, death, and resurrection? What does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? The first thing I think this passage teaches about his kingdom is that Jesus' kingdom is a movement. It's a movement. Listen to what he says to Peter in verse 16, or 18, excuse me. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, somewhere along the line, we began to have a a misconception that the kingdom of God was like the church, that it was a building that we go to, and a place that we retreat to, and a place that we find rest in, and a place that we escape from the world in, and that we retreat from the world in order to have community and in order to worship God. What's fascinating is Jesus mentions the church two times in the Gospels, two to three, depending on how you count them. And in the Gospels, when he mentions the church, he doesn't say that we are a fortress to retreat to, but that we are a movement attacking the fortress of Hades. This fortress that has been established in his creation since the world fell, this fortress of sin and death and darkness and devastation and oppression and sexism and racism and abortion and evil and death, those things have established a fortress here on this earth, and his kingdom is coming for it. His kingdom is coming to set fire to and tear down the gates of oppression and evil and darkness and sin. That is what Jesus came to save us from. Not just our personal sin, but the implications of our sin for the world, the systems and structures and fortresses of darkness in this world. And that is who the people of God are called to be, that this kingdom movement attacking the gates of Hades and the fortresses of darkness. Martin Luther King, he says it this way, any religion which professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about social and economic conditions that scar the soul is a spiritually moribund religion only waiting for the day to be buried. See, while social justice is not the, the centerpiece of the gospel and it's not the totality of the gospel, any gospel without commitment to neighbor and concern for the vulnerable and a heart for those who are oppressed and concern for justice is an incomplete gospel. We are not only called to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but to proclaim that his kingdom has come and so darkness cannot stand. That the evil we see in this world has no place anymore because the kingdom of light has come and darkness will not overcome it. 
That is the proclamation that the people of God bring. And that can feel overwhelming, can it? And when you start talking about some of the issues that plague this world, which one does the church care about? Which one do the people of God attack first? I mean, do we go against racism or do we address sexism or do we address human trafficking or do we address oppression or poverty or homelessness or immigration or what do we do? And it can feel overwhelming to the point where we kind of just back up and say, there's too many problems and I can't do anything about it. But Jesus has this fascinating parable about the kingdom of God where he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And when you came in today, you should have received the bag and you probably didn't know what it was. But it's a bag that's full of mustard seeds. This is what a mustard seed looks like. You see that? Jesus says that this mustard seed is the smallest seed that turns into the largest tree in the garden. He says that the kingdom of God is is like something that starts small but then grows into something beautiful that provides shade and rest and a home for those in need. And my challenge to you today is you may feel overwhelmed by the problems of this world, but Jesus' teaching is that as we participate in the kingdom of God, every small act of kindness and courage and justice, God can use to advance his kingdom. That we don't have to tackle all of the problems of all the world in one moment. That we can be a people of kindness and courage and faithfulness and justice and that the smallest act from the smallest person who feels like they have nothing to offer Jesus can, through his movement of the kingdom, bring about the reconciliation and renewal and resurrection in this world. And so we can start small. The second thing I would say this about this idea that that God's kingdom is a movement and not a fortress is I, I, I wonder, I'm not saying that I have an answer, this is why it's happened, but I wonder if there is something for the church to learn in this moment that we are living through in this current global pandemic where our half of our room is empty because we cannot gather together, where we have to meet online, where we have to distance from one another, where we cannot meet like the church always has in America, I wonder if God might be doing something in this to remind us that the church is not a building we go to but a movement that we take to the world. Could it be God pushing us out of our comfort zones and our places that we have always resided, the places we have retreated to and says, no, this is a kingdom movement to go into the world and bring my light to the darkness. Could this moment be an opportunity for the church to step into something that we may have forgotten? To go into the world in Jesus' name, that he is Lord, Just a few thoughts. But I will say this. This whole series is beyond the weekend. The church is not just about weekend worship. The church is not just about gathering together to sing and to open scripture. The church is the movement of the kingdom of God against the fortress of hell, death, 
sin, and darkness. May we, the people of Waterstone, step in to that. But Jesus' kingdom is a movement of people living under his rule and reign and, and living to advance this movement of the kingdom. But the question is, is what is this kingdom and this movement like? How do we advance his kingdom? Jesus answers that question in his very next teaching. Peter declares that he is Lord, that he is king, that he is the Messiah. And then Jesus begins teaching something that you would not expect a king to teach. He says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What's fascinating is then it goes on to say that, that Peter hears this and he thinks, what? No way. You are king and kings don't die. I've seen a lot of kingdoms come into power and none of the kings die and then establish their rule and reign. That's not how it works. And yet what Jesus says is that his kingdom comes not through power, shedding the blood of his enemies, but through shedding his own, through sacrificial love. You see, the kingdom of God is a movement of sacrificial love. It begins in the place of Jesus, the king, laying down his life for his enemies. That's the place the kingdom starts. And we get mixed up sometimes because we, like Peter, we want Jesus to fulfill our dreams. We want Jesus to seize power and, and defeat our enemies and take over the world and, and kick butt and take names. And yet Jesus says that he comes to die and to lay down his life and sacrifice himself. And so of course Peter would say, no way. That's not how this is supposed to work. And Jesus gives the sharpest rebuke he ever gives in scripture and he calls Peter satanic. He says, if you don't get this, if you don't get that my kingdom comes through sacrificial love and not through power, not through the sword, not through victory, but through defeat, then you've missed the whole thing. And so his strongest rebuke is that the church, that the people of God not seek power through earthly means, but through sacrificial love. That is how we advance his kingdom. We don't like that. We don't like that at all. It's frustrating for us because we see the way power works in the world. And we see the way that people in power and people who disagree with the church manipulate and coerce and try to, to sideline and marginalize the church's voice. And they do it in really profound ways, like saying the church doesn't care about this, so they're wrong, so we shouldn't listen to them. And the fascinating thing about Scripture is, is Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that we will be oppressed and marginalized and told that, that we don't care about the right things. And he calls us to love sacrificially anyways. You see, because... What we want is a king who will fulfill our dreams and who will make our life better and give us the security that we long for and, and make our life look like the way we want. And I think where we've gone wrong with the gospel is that we have, have truncated it and made it this message that Jesus can make your life better by forgiving your sins and taking you to heaven and fulfilling your dreams. 
But the actual call of the gospel is that, that if Jesus is king, then we are his subjects. And that our dreams die next to his dream. And that we lay down our life too. Because the way of the kingdom of God is the way of the cross. This sacrificial love that Jesus lives out, he doesn't just leave it with himself. He calls us, his followers, to live that way as well. And so he says this to the disciples. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. See, the call of Jesus is not just to get to heaven when we die, but to take up our cross and follow him now. You know what's fascinating? Is that in our cultural climate, so many people are, are trying to determine happiness and fulfillment in life and, and satisfaction in life internally. And so they're looking inward to what feels good and what feels right to them and what makes them happy. And then they're saying, okay, that's what I need to pursue. You know what's fascinating is that there is a ton of research being done by sociologists and psychologists and scientists that are showing the devastating effect of people living for their own happiness. And in fact, what they are finding over and over and over again in these studies is that the people who have the most satisfaction, the most happiness, the most fulfillment in their life are the people who are laying down their lives, who are, who are living for others over themselves. It's wild. If only someone had told us sooner, right? <laughs> 2,000 years ago, Jesus says that following him, laying down your life, is the way to find true abundant life, sacrificial love. And you wonder, it's not working for us. I mean, look at our culture. We have everything we could ever ask for, and we are the most depressed, empty, lonely society in the history of the world. It's not working. And you wonder if the possibility of the message that Jesus is Lord and calls us to lay down our lives while we may not like it actually could lead to the fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness that we're hoping to find within ourselves. To the call of God's people is to love sacrificially, to lay down our lives, to do things that don't make sense to others. And that is why I love this church. I love Waterstone because we live this out so often and so well. It is so amazing to be a part of a body of believers who get this truth, who volunteer in a food pantry during a pandemic, though they know it's a risk to their health. People who, who take up immigration and start ministries to try to help people who are refugees in this country. People who help children with disabilities, we understand that those things require sacrifice. So I'm so thankful for this church and that we understand that and that we live that out and I hope we do it even better. But I wanted to take a moment today to share just a brief story with you about a woman in our church who I think exemplified and lived this out. And her name is Sarah Gallegos. 
She's a nurse and a young mom with two kids. And when the pandemic hit, well, I'll just let you hear her words and how she shares the story. Hi, Sarah. It's good to see you. I understand you've been away for a little bit, so welcome home. Thank you so much. It feels so good to be home. Yeah, tell me a little bit about where you went and um, how that came to be. Okay, so I was just in Los Angeles working at a VA center there um, as a nurse, and how that came about is that I am a nurse at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine, and as the pandemic hit, we were part of the non-essential healthcare procedures that were suspended. Um, so I was dealing with, you know, how do I provide for my family and also feeling like I had the essential skills that were needed to help in the pandemic and I wasn't somebody that could sit home on furlough knowing I had those skills, but also dealing with having a lot of anxiety with how do I work COVID and come home to my family and not worry about their safety. Um, so I started praying and I really felt like God was calling me to travel to the front lines so that I could work as a nurse and help in a crisis, but not then come home worrying about exposing my kids. Um, so I started having some conversations. Um, I applied with the Department of Veteran Affairs to travel as COVID relief staff to some of the COVID hotspots um, to work the VA hospitals. And then I had a conversation with my boss who, by the time I left, I wasn't furloughed anymore, but she felt my calling and felt like I could still go and that she would hold my position for me. Wow. And I talked to the boy's dad. I have two kids. Um, Caleb is nine and a half and Elijah just turned seven and their dad was okay stepping into that single parent full-time role. And then I met with my counselor, Keith Hughes, because I wanted to make sure that he didn't think I was totally crazy. (laughs) And most importantly, I reached out to Pastor Larry because I really needed his discernment Mm -hmm. that this was a decision that I was okay to do. And Pastor Larry and really all of Waterstone staff were so supportive and so positive in their response and in the prayer that I received before I went. And Waterstone really made it possible for me to go. So um, Sarah Lloyd gave me her niece, who I could entrust my boys to, and Paul Joslin put me in touch with a first responder small group that welcomed me and supported me and met with me along the way. And I had my MOPS group that continued to meet with me. And then as my story kind of unfolded, Pastor Larry would send my updates to the Waterstone Prayer Community. Mm-hmm. And as I was dealing with some of the struggles that I had, it became so important to me to know that there was an entire community of people that were yeah. praying for me and giving me advice and offering me wisdom. And it really became a lifeline for me while I was in Los Angeles. That's awesome. I love that the community surrounded you. So tell me, uh, is there a particular patient or interaction that you felt uh, that was transformative or that you really felt God's presence in that moment? There were so many interactions, um, but with the patients, probably the most touching moments I had were being able to connect them with their families. So because of COVID, only veterans who were actively dying were allowed to have any visitors. Um, so often it was weeks or even months that these veterans hadn't seen their family members. And so when a call would get transferred to my nurse, phone, I would get up and I would go into that veteran's room and if they were able to directly interact with their family, they did that. And Mm -hmm. if they weren't able to, I would hold the phone and just reassure the family that he could hear them. Mm -hmm. And if he translate any kind of response that he was having to them. And in that moment, the emotion from the veteran and then from the family, just knowing that 
at least at that one time, their nurse was kind and their nurse was praying for him was amazing. I love that. How do you feel like this experience has changed you going forward? I really had to learn to trust God. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all say, you know, we trust God, but to actually live it. So I went to Los Angeles, not just during a pandemic, but during a time of extreme racial unrest and political unrest. And I was a single white minority in a city that I hadn't done any research on and I really didn't know how safe I was or wasn't. And so a lot of the times my prayer was as simple as, God, I'm trusting that you got me here and I'm trusting that you're gonna get me out. Like, um, and also I really learned like, as we see the world overcome with such tragedy and as I have seen the tragedy hit, not only Waterstone, but also my own family, really wrestling with bad things are gonna happen to good people mm -hmm. and bad things are gonna happen to my people, but mm -hmm. really learning that God is not silent and he's not distant and he will give us what we need to get through the suffering. Oh, it's such a great opportunity to learn those things and to really feel them and know them intimately. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh, it's just incredible to see how God works in our lives. It really is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So obviously we want to thank Sarah for sharing that amazing story. Um, someone last night came after watching that video and said, ah, I feel kind of guilty because I can't do that. And I said, hey, remember, we also talked about you can start small. Like not all of us can necessarily do what Sarah did, but we're so thankful for the sacrifice and the way that, that she uh, led us um, over the last few months. And so we just wanted to, to share that story with you. So to wrap up, I just want to say one more thing. This kingdom movement, this announcement, this proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that he is king now, and that he is leading a movement of his kingdom through sacrificial love and the way of the cross to, to bring reconciliation and restoration to this world. It has always been a core ethos of Waterstone to believe that. It has always been central to who we are, and that will continue into the future. What I would encourage us to do this week is to think about how that truth, that proclamation that Jesus is Lord, actually provides the answer that I think people are looking for. The good news that Jesus is king over this world and that he will one day set everything right, but in the present moment is working to bring about reconciliation and restoration is good news that people are looking for. I mean, think about just the last few months. We are living in a global pandemic. Our country is on fire, both in the streets and in the wilderness. We are experiencing hurricanes and disease and killer wasps. I mean, it is not hard to look out your window and see that the world is broken and needs fixing, that it needs to be mended and made whole. And the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that he is going about that business, that is good news that we can cling to. It is good news because it gives us hope for the future, but it gives us hope in the present. It can cultivate a spirit of joy in our lives that whatever our circumstances are, whatever darkness we face, whatever the gates of hell try to, to stay in this world, we can have joy that Jesus is King that he is Lord.
And so my challenge for you this week is where can you cultivate a spirit of joy from that deep truth? That whatever burden you are carrying, whatever battle you are facing, Jesus is king. And the gates of hell will not overcome that proclamation. And where can that bring joy to you and your circumstances? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that, uh, that your rule and your reign would become more apparent in our lives. That the truth of, of this proclamation that Peter made, that you, Jesus, are king, would be what governs our choices and decisions and the way that we go about living, that we would live as subjects in your kingdom, that we would follow your way of sacrificial love and that we would follow the way of the cross. Father, give us the strength for that. Father, give us the hope of that truth. And Father, may that truth bring joy to our lives, whatever burdens we may be facing this week. And it's in Christ's name, because he is king, that we pray. Amen.